And welcome all to True House Stories, the Wednesday edition show. And I'm now stuck in pushing my way through the UK. And thankfully for Zoom, we were able to get everyone together to have a great discussion again with two people that I care for very much and musically have, have written, oh God, some of the greatest dance records we all dance to. Ultra Flavor, Roach Motel, they had Junior Boys Own. Uh, that, to me, that was a label that was incredible. Okay, we, on Junior Boys Own, you had Ashley Beatle and so many great records. They did Lolita Holloway, May She Rest in Peace, another disco diva that I'm going to have them tell that story in a moment. Um, Junior Boys Own, for those that know, is a, is a brand that is synonymous with dance music, especially in the UK, especially in London. It has a special place. The train spotters know that when, he, when they used to release a record, it was definitely a go-to. Like Strictly Rhythm had its sound. Junior Boys had their sound. And they made it a point to put the right type of records together to release. And they also picked up other records from other fellow friends and DJs that they felt were appropriate to their sound. Pete Heller went on to have big hits. Terry Farley went on to do his thing. That together, they were a massive team. Terry's now... Uh, put back out Faith Magazine again, which thankfully I've been helping them working on. And we've been promoting on the show as they've been seeing. And thank you very much for getting us those magazines. And it's nice that we're having a good publication with real stories. So enough of me telling you all about me. I want to welcome <laughs> all the way from the UK to the rest of the world, Mr. Terry Farley and Pete Heller. Thank you, fellas, for coming on. As we always know. Thank Hello. you. Is everyone okay? Everyone relaxed because everybody's coming in and the, and the they're coming in droves and sharing the show. Thankfully, so as everybody knows, I'll put the question out first and I'll let either one of you start. Okay, so you're both young kids. How does music find the both of you? Whoever wants to take it first, by all means. Uh, um, well, Terry, you um, okay? Um, well, music was just part of the background of my life, really, because I was young, I'm the youngest of a quite a big family, uh, six kids in my family, so I'm the youngest. I was born in the middle of the '60s. I grew up with just music constantly on in the background, just, you know, the usual stuff, all the chart stuff and Beatles, Rolling Stones. And then by the time the seventies were, were, were underway, I was like listening to, you know, my sister was mad into Led Zeppelin and, and the rest of it, David Bowie. So, um, yeah, I just was constantly listening to those sounds and processing them. And my dad was a big jazz fan, big band and, and, um, boogie woogie all that kind of stuff so yeah so that was really my my thing and um as i grew up in in the 80s uh, we were just kind of flooded and overwhelmed by the music and that was around the time because it was such a musical culture um britain you know top of the pops every week all the chart stuff listening to radio one you couldn't really get away with it get away from it rather so um I was always listening and always being inspired by music. Mr. Terry? Terry, Terry yeah, your journey. Pretty much the same. I mean, I, you know, my mum, my mum used to buy records, um, Motown records. <coughs> Tamla Motown, when I, when I was a little kid, Tamla Motown was the pop music. It was everyone listened to Tamil Motown. Um, and um, as a little a little kid, I must be really, she used to sort of like play the records upstairs in her bedroom, teach me dances, you know, teach me how to dance. Um, and she used to always say, don't tell your dad, because, you know, sort of like little boys being taught how to dance was a little bit effeminate, I guess. So... I was learning all these little moves, kind of odd moves. 
Um, and then it was just kind of what you did, really. You know, you you had growing up where the, the, the area I grew up in, you had reggae, you had soul, and that was it. You know, people weren't into anything else. And um, buying records was, was a thing that I did from, you know, I, I remember the first record that I ever bought. My mum gave me some money and she said, oh, do you want to buy it, you know? And I, so we went to Shepherd's Bush Market and I bought a record called Bonnie and Clyde by Georgie Fame. Um, do you know that record? No, I'm not sure. Georgie Fame, Bonnie and Clyde, it was like number one and it was the song, it was the story about Bonnie and Clyde. And uh, it had sound effects in it where they got shot and they all got killed. It had the car screeching and, you know, and the police stopping them. Um, and Georgie Fame was a really English um, jazz musician. Um, very, you know, used to, when, when the American acts would come to England, like that, he would, he would always be the guy on the organ backing them. Um, and, and that was kind of like my entry and, you know, and it was, it was just exciting. But I actually, I, I liked going into record shops. I, it, it, you know, I'd look at people in the record shop, you know, older boys or, or, or men, and you kind of see these different characters and the, the, the culture of a record shop I found really interesting, um, especially reggae culture where, you know, no one spoke in the shop. No one let anyone else know what they were buying. You know, their little pile of records and they would just nod when he played a record. And at the end of the an hour, they would just tally it up. Um, and I just, I, I like that culture. I really like, you know, to this day, although I don't buy vinyl anymore, you know, I, I, I really do get the whole culture around it. Ah, okay. So we're going to say now, because I do remember the movie Bonnie and Clyde, but I don't remember the song for whatever reason. But I do. I, I'm so. It was number one in England. It was a number one record. When, when, when we finish here, we've been just bought Bonnie and Clyde. It's a, it's a great record. It's, I mean, it's a novelty record, novelty gangster record. It's, 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 it's a great record. Okay, so up until you guys meet, I'm saying because I've always read over the years you were big into Jamaican reggae. You know that you were into you love reggae music. So, what was the premise of going on in in London? What was the sound in the seventies? Or you know, as you guys were growing up, what was you got to paint a picture a little bit for everybody? What was happening before this house music thing happened? Before you guys got together? Probably too young in the seventies to 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 go clubbing. Um, I mean, you know, the, the places that we went to were playing pretty much the same music as what, you know, Larry Levan was playing at the Paradise Garage, um, bar a few of the really uh, overtly disco records, you know, and in England, um, the kind of what you would call the underground tended to like a lot of the jazz stuff as well. You know, uh, New York City, Miroslav, Vitruss and Jaws, stuff like that. Um, Lalo Schifrin, uh, Life on Mars, Dexter Wansel, yep. That kind of that kind of jazz disco was was huge in London and and in other parts of the country. Um, so that's what kind of hooked me. And I was buying them records. And then one day uh, we we used to go to a club called Skindles, um, and there was a DJ there called Alan Southern who now lives in America. Uh, and he was a brilliant, brilliant, played brilliant music. And he was, an, he was a five, six, seven years older than us. And he was one of the tough guys at Chelsea. So everyone looked up to him. You know, all the kids looked up to him, the dancers and the, and the tougher kids. And, and um, we just kind of got, got really into it like that. And, and around 1981, me and my friend Paul McKee, decided we were going to do a Skindles revival. Now, this club had only been shut two, three years, so, like, the idea of doing a revival night, where, but where he would play, we'd get Alan, and he would play, you know, Francie McGee, Delirium, he would play Linda Clifford, Runaway Love, 
Um, and we thought we'd have about 100 people come, our friends, and we sold it out. I mean, we we never promoted before. We had like 500 people in there. And I remember going home and throwing the money, cool cash, throwing the money up on my bed, on my mattress, and screaming. Scream. And, and I, I, I bought an airline ticket to, to America with the money. You did? Uh, there was There was a... A budget airline called Fred by Freddie Laker, this Australian airline, and they would do. They started flights for hundreds. It's a British airline. No, no Freddie Laker. He was he was Australian, but he was living in this country, and he oh, is a British oh. airline. Laker Airways. They all they all fucked him off in the end, didn't they? They all got together and, and, yeah, and got, uh, yeah. did a deal on him. But I, I remember we come to I, me and my me and my wife. We come to New York. Um, on the money that I had kind of got through DJing and promoting for the first time. And it kind of like, oh, this is good. I need to do this more often. And, um, yeah, so that was kind of it for me. Oh, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Okay, hang on. So you, did you come into New York and go like to, like everybody else did, run the Studio 54, go to the Paradise Garage, you go to any of the clubs, anything? I tell you what, our... our we didn't, we didn't, in 1979, 1980, you know, I was a teenager, we didn't know about the Paradise Garage. You know, there was no magazines that wrote about that. There was no internet. There was no radio shows that, you know, had Larry LeVan playing. We just didn't know. And, and you know, later on in the 80s, you'd get tapes. You know, people would buy tapes of Tony Humphrey's show, and tapes of, of Larry Levan. But that that come much later. You know, when I when we went to New York, um, it was about the same time as that film come out with Charles Bronson. What was that film? You know, where he was where he was going killing muggers in the Central Park. You know that Charles Bronson film? Yes, I do, but I can't think of the name of it. He was like a vigilante, but he was deliberately getting him putting himself so, like, um, you can't go to Central Park, you can't go here, you can't go there. The same, so we was in New York three nights. Um, I didn't want to go to Studio 54 because I knew it would be full of wankers and it would be some club, which we had in England, and I didn't like anyway. Uh, I didn't know about Paradise Garage, um, but I wouldn't have got in anyway. You know, uh, you know the, my friend who I did this party with, I'm telling you, Paul McKee, he he come to New York. He's you know the famous picture of the ramp where everyone queuing up at the Paradise yes. Garage. Yeah, he, he took that picture. Right now he he got to the front door and he was working off for London Records, and I think they had either they had had a record out that was really big at the Paradise Garage, and maybe one of their acts had played there, and I think they got him on the guest list. Um, but they, they wouldn't let him in. You know, he wasn't a member, and he was with his girlfriend, so he wasn't gay. He was white. Um, and um, he he had to, I think he had to sort of pull some big nail from where he was working to, to get in. But he took that picture on the ramp, and he took a couple of other little snaps inside. But, um, no, we, 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 we didn't do anything like that. Um, it, it, to be honest with you, it was overwhelming as it was. You know, seeing people, New York in, in 81 was, Manhattan was quite a, a shock. I bet. Um, I mean, from know. England, yeah, I bet it was a shock. Yeah, people, you well, know. Well, here's a question. I, here's the question first. You know that movie everybody sees? All you guys love that movie from 79. New York, New York Warriors, the Warriors, whatever that movie is, because every English guy asks me that question. Was it? what the warriors were did it look like it did it smell like it was it exactly what you guys seen on that movie because all of you had this idea new york was like this was it exactly that way when you came no <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't like gangs wandering around but it was pretty it's pretty rough so i actually went there in 1981 because um we also got a flight to new york in 1981 on later airways but we were staying um, with my family, my dad, they did a, a house swap with um, 
So you could do that. You could like, get these directories of people who the house on the summer holiday, and we swapped with his family in um, upstate New York, well, out just outside the city, a place called Larchmont. And um, and my sister at the time, she was a nurse in New Rochelle, so we came out to see her really. But we were there for two weeks, and it was just after the royal wedding when Princess Di got married to Charles, and so there was it was just all over the place. And um, but we we went into Manhattan a few times, but it was the, the trains were all covered in graffiti. You went into Times Square at night; it was just hookers everywhere. So it was a bit it was a bit more like Midnight Cowboy than the Warriors, but um, yeah, it's pretty rough. It's pretty rough. I remember going down downtown as well, like down, you know, that where they all and just the warehouses. There was no, nothing there at all. Just uh, yeah, there was no sort of shops and restaurants and all that stuff. But it was it was great. It was you know it was the real thing, the real deal. You knew you knew there was a buzz about the place. There was a real energy, and you could feel it. The, the same trip that we made, we also we had a few a, a short stay in New York, and then we went to uh, Miami, and. Um, I was determined to go to a concert in Miami. So um, we, we looked at the newspaper and there was a Solar Records um, uh, showcase. So we went to see The Whispers, Shalimar, and, oh, God, an, another group who I can't, Lakeside? Possibly Epicassive Voyage, that'd be, that'd be right. Yep. Yeah, Lakeside. And, and of course, you know, so we, it was like, where is this on? So we went to the, this place where to buy the tickets. And I remember we went in there and uh, the woman was going, uh, it's, it's soul and funk. Yes, yes, that's what we like. Where are you from? England. Right. Are you sure? Yes, yes, we like this. And, uh, and it, was quite, it was quite strange because, it, uh, you know, I... I we used to we see we used to go to a lot of concerts in England, and you would go and see, you know, James Brown, Funkadelic, uh, Sylvester, and uh, the audiences would be very mixed, very uh, racially mixed. And we went in this, and we were in an arena, I guess, like a basketball arena, and we were sitting there, and I think we were probably the only two white couples there, and everyone else was dressed up. This was the other thing. You know, just jeans and T-shirts. Everyone was in suits. And all the ladies had big hairs and, you know, and it was, I was like, what the fuck, you know. Um, but that was cool. That was cool. We, you know, that was, I'm glad we did that. But we never went clubbing, no. All right, but look, you know what? That's why the woman kept asking me, are you sure you want to go? Because all of you don't realize in those days how segregated America was. It was incredible. Yeah. Especially down yeah, south. Woof. Florida, yeah. Yeah. They're looking at you guys going, Are you sure you like that music? Are you positive you yeah. like that music? You're like, Yeah, we know what that music is. Because you didn't deal with that in England. That's why Jimi Hendrix went over there. He didn't have none of the problems he had. He, things were much more relaxed in your country to go and be, you know, of another color and be comfortable and relaxed to do what you do and be and enjoy playing at a spot and not have a problem with a police officer, including in the early 80s. It was still going on. I mean, Pete, Pete will, Pete will uh, back me up on this. The time uh, was when we come to Chicago with Lolita. You know, we had a couple of situations in restaurants that, you know, were, were you know, were quite offensive, really. Hold on. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on. Um, Hang on. Wait, 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 wait. We have to explain what happened there because you said Lolita. I, I mentioned it before. So that before we get to Lolita part, I want to know how you guys got together. That's a very important part to the story because I haven't heard. I know both of you are coming to New York separately. When does Folly meet Hella? And then we'll get to that. It's quite a lot. That's quite a lot of time after after that. I mean, I was what fifteen, I think, when when I was in um, New York. The first time. So after that, I was, at un you know, I went to university. I, my, my sort of journey towards where Terry was, was through hip hop and early, well, it was called electro, really. That was the thing that got me. I think actually, um, you know, there was a lot of music and when I was going to a lot, a lot of gigs, one kind of really formative experience was going to see The Clash play at Brixton. 
and they had um i think it was fab five freddy um and he was the sort of support act and um one of his djs was just playing beforehand and and this is kind of what i guess we're talking again not not much later than this probably 84 something like that and um 83 so he was his dj was just well it may even be him himself just playing hip-hop or electro as we electro funk it was called at the time and it was just i'd never really i'd heard bits and pieces but it, it was just like i remember just sitting there and listening to this sound and thinking this is it this is this is what i want and um and that was kind of like my journey into in the more sort of underground black music was was kind of then really that's how i suddenly sort of transformed uh, my my what i wanted to do and um so I went off to university <coughs> shortly afterwards and um, got, I was running clubs, um, small clubs, some parties up there in Manchester before the whole Acid House thing. And um, then Acid House, that kind of movement that, that started in uh, 1988, which is the year I left Manchester and came down to London. And it was the clubs in London where we ended up meeting up. Oh really? This is like eighty-seven, eighty-eight already. Now you guys met, right around that time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think probably nineteen eighty-eight. You know, I met Pete at Shum. Pete, Pete. My first memory is Pete actually playing a guitar over, over Danny Danny Ramplin's records. Um, but I also do what I've, I kind of always, I was thinking about this the other day. Fondly, Pete had a kind of intro when he, whenever he played him, he would, he would warm up. He would play um, the acapella of First Choice, Love and Happiness, with the little road solo in, Love and Happiness. And then he would sort of like, you know, start playing records. And he always did play a lot of, this is, now this is you know, on a house scene. He'd play a lot of records that I used to really like from the disco era. He would play Whistle Bump, Diodato, um, T-Connection, Midnight. Um, so that's, I think that's the first time we kind of would have like sort of been, been in each other's company. Yeah, so that would that, well probably we would have been in each other's company actually at the fitness centre. So Shum was a was a club run by Danny Rampling. And his wife Jenny, and they, um, and it was uh, in a very small venue. It was basically a, a gym. That's why it's called the fitness center. In the in the week, and then on on um, Saturdays, they sort of pushed all the gym equipment to one side, hung up a big banner, and stuck. Um, Norman Jay's brother had a sound system. It was actually a reggae system, and they put it in temporarily, and then put a smoke machine and a strobe in the corner, and that was basically the club. And had a little bar and some stairs downstairs, and it sort of become a bit of a legend a legend amongst clubs because it was quite difficult to get into eventually and it didn't hold many people but it was very intense and so we probably would have been in that room together but not aware of each other at the time um and 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 shim eventually moved out of that venue to to a bigger place so it went to a place um at the time called um what was, what was the name of the place at the time it's busby's which became a story too and busby's um that's where I got to know Danny sort of quite well in this sort of downtime, but after the fitness centre closed down, there was sort of a hiatus. There was about a few months where nothing was going on. We were just travelling around London to all the other clubs. But um, Danny opened it there and he asked me to be the, the warm-up DJ, which was a bit of a, a shock at the time because I was pretty well unknown. I didn't, you know, and I was quite young, didn't have a huge record collection, but... We kind of bonded, so it was a, it was, it was a, it was, that was kind of my break. And um, I would play the warm up and downstairs in uh, just before Danny came on, and then Terry would be upstairs with Andy Weatherall playing a kind of real mixture of all sorts of sort of Balearic, which as it was known at the time, and then sort of reggae and dub and all sorts of other weird things. So funk and soul. So yeah, I was I was really there just to warm up. For Danny, so that's why I would start off quite slow and just generally build build the vibe as um, as people came into the club. Um, but yeah, how long did that last for you being the resident warm up guy for for Terry? Uh, for Terry for for Rampling for Danny. For Danny, yeah. Well, for Busby's, I think it was about 
Yeah, yeah, was it open now? A year and a half, something yeah. like that. Eventually, we moved to another venue. They they stopped doing that. It was a Wednesday night, and then and they closed, and they moved to another venue called the Park, which is over in uh, in West London. And that was um, yeah, and then then it was just guests, well, guest DJs that shared with with um, Terry, which actually where I played guitar was actually there. So I don't think oh, yeah. sort of mi- slightly mixed the times up, but but yeah, there was the part where I played. It's very hard to kind of, you know, actually do a timeline because, with it, you know, weeks went into weeks and years yeah. went into I think years. the guitar thing was definitely, I think what happened is we kind of connected through going, you know, meeting up and, and at various different nights and, and going to Ibiza. I remember you that, that opening night at Amnesia. We sort of, I remember chatting to you then. And then, um, and then the park thing. And then I was playing guitar, and that was when um, we started. You started. Um, you started up the label, and that was when you needed someone who could play or do stuff um, for the first Boca Juniors record. And that's kind of how we started. I mean, Pete. Pete told me uh, uh, he had a drum machine. You had a, didn't you? You had a. a well, actually, I, I had a drum machine, and I had. They weren't mine though. They were basically. I borrowed a bunch of equipment from Richard Norris, who, who's sort of in the grid. He's quite well known artist. Yes, I remember. The grid. He had, he, wow. Yeah, I remember the grid. Wow. And he, I was friendly with him at the time, and, and I'd hung out with him in the studio. And he had a bunch. He had a sampler, like an his old Casio FZ1, the little twelve-bit sampler keyboard, and um, and a couple of other bits and bobs. And I was like, oh, can I borrow them? And um, so I'd learned to program a bit on on this little Alesis pro like hardware programmer. And that, and and I'd had it sort of in my room in Camden Town in my flat, and I'd been sort of playing old go-go records and stuff. So then that sort of became the sort of backbone of our first track that we worked on together, which is this track that we did with um, Andy Weatherall. It was Boca Juniors, and uh, it was called Rays, and it was sort of like my sort of sample beats and my rather failed attempt at being a guitarist. Um, but yeah, that was basically the 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 start of that uh, me and Terry really working together because after that Terry had started working with the bank or the farm and he wanted a bit of support really because he felt I think you felt a bit lacking in confidence I didn't know what I was doing yeah and I didn't know what I was doing but I was prepared to twiddle knobs I just thought oh I don't I'll get in there I'll I'll, I'll press a few buttons and <laughs> and um, and we were very lucky because the first record we got to work on was this record by a bank called the farm who Terry was friends with from Liverpool. And um, they did a record called All Together Now, which became a big hit. And we were on producer points for that. And uh, we co-produced that with Suggs from Madness. And he sort of, that was the first record they recorded on the album. And I think Suggs realised quite quickly that we were absolutely of no use whatsoever in the studio and got <laughs> and got rid of us quite quick, but not before we'd got our producer point on All Together Now. And, um, and that... Yeah, so wait, wait, so would you say that was like the beginnings of how we're going to figure out how to do this? Like we got to step up our game. We got to learn something. What, what was the, it was more than that. It was, it was actually, it was a, here's a check for f- 15 grand, which is what came up, came my way quite soon after that. Cause it was a big hit. So I was like, well, I've got some money. So let's buy, a, I bought a computer. I bought a load of, of gear and I was like, I'll learn how to use it now. So that really became the basis of, of all the um, of all the records we make, because we had we had some equipment, so we could I could figure out how to use it at home. And then it was just whenever we went into the studio, we didn't have to rely on on um, you know at the time you you, you go, if you did a remix, you got sent into a studio with an engineer and usually a, a sort of programmer, and you'd have to try and explain to them what you meant. But whereas now we could we could do it ourselves, which is which is what you know that's why things were. I mean, it was difficult as well. In those days, you know, computers and equipment was quite expensive. So it wasn't as simple as just having your laptop like it is now. You know, if you wanted that gear, if you wanted all that equipment, you had to you had to, you had to spend a fair bit of money. So if you didn't have a record deal, you needed access to a bit of cash. Um, and we were quite young. I was quite young. Terry was, you know, didn't, you know, wasn't like, we didn't sort of get a big advance or anything. We weren't a band. So, and we were being asked to do lots of remixes, so we were just sort of we were learning on the job, really. So that one record basically launched it for you guys, and that got everyone to know who you were instantly, right? Well, it gave us the it gave us the tools to start um, working out how to do it properly. 
Interesting. See, I had no idea. See, here's where I'm stumped over. I didn't even know you played guitar, bro. Well, oh, I, I didn't really. I sort of, I could play a few riffs. I was like a guitar player. Like, I didn't know that. I'm like, this is really cool. Now, here's the thing. Terry, were you, you know, because you're coming up in the 80s, you're DJing. Were you doing this full time or were you doing something else as well before the record label started? No, I, I worked, I was um, a gas fitter. Really? Yeah, I was a gas fitter. Um, and I was changing, you know, like the gas meter you have in the house. Um, I was working with uh, Sue's um, cousin who had this uh, contract with the gas board for changing and putting in new meters. Uh, quite frankly, it was the right doddle. Um, it, you know, and uh, and I liked it. it. It was really easy. You know, it was it was it was uh, the the quintessential kind of working class life in the eighties, where you were dodging everything. You were dodging everything. You know, people would start to work at eight. They would go to the calf. You'd be in the calf for an hour. Um, then you'd then you'd have this little scam where you go back to the depot because you didn't have the right part. Then you'd go and have, um, do a couple of jobs. You'd be in the pub at lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I didn't drink. I used to play Space Invaders, but the older guys, you know, they were drinking pints and pints at lunchtime. Um, and then after that, you would do a couple of jobs and, and you'd be home at three o'clock. Um, it was quite, it, you know, it was quite easy, but, but here's the thing. Um, Paul, I'd been working um, with a crew called the Raid Club, the Raid, and this was like 86, 87, and three DJs were me, I was the warm-up, Paul Oakenfold and Pete Tong. And the Raid was run by Gary Hazeman, who... God bless his soul. You know, he made Acid, that record, D-Mob, uh, and another guy called Paul Starsky. And it was brilliant. You know, it was really good. The music was go-go, early house, uh, a lot of kind of New York, what you know, big New York D-trains type records. Um, uh, the crowd was great, very trendy, really cool, loads of girls. Uh, we did warehouse parties. We did the Wag Club. We did an all-nighter at the Hundred Club. Um, did a tent, a circus tent in Hyde Park, I seem to remember. Uh, Batsy Park. Batsy Park. That's right. I was yeah. there that night. That was New Year's Eve. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You you played, didn't you? No, I was. I was before my DJing days. That was, uh, uh, Norman yeah. J played. That's Norman J played. That's it. Norman J played. Fat Tony played, and you had to go. Oh, wow. Basically, Hazeman had. Gone in because they, you know, they had, the, they had the circus up all week for two weeks with all the elephants and everything. And he had gone in there, and you know, what time do you close New Year's Eve? Right? Can we do? Can we do a party here afterwards? And I think bung someone some money, um, and um, and then we had to climb. We had to go in and we had to climb up the pole where you know the trapeze artists would go, and they put the decks up the top. And he was climbing up this ladder, and it was really scary. Um, but it was very posh around there, and um, I think it only we only lasted till maybe just after midnight when the police raided it and shut it down. I mean, you know, very apt. It was called the raid because they, they were kind of illegal parties, uh, so that never lasted very long. But my point is, uh, Paul Oakenfold then asked me to be resident at. Uh, a new club that they were starting called Spectrum at Heaven on a Monday. Um, and they, they, I'll give you 50 quid. And I was like, oh, that's not bad. You know, I'm probably only getting 100 quid a week, you know, doing what I was doing. Um, and then that went crazy. And then on the Thursday, he had been, he, him and Nancy Noyes, Paul Oakenfold and Nancy Noyes, had been the residents at this club called Future which was a really, really cool kind of balearic party for all the kids who had been living in Ibiza and who had nowhere to go, you know, once they're back from London, back into London. And he said, would you be resident? I'll give you £100 a week. And I was like, my goodness, you know, £100 a week. Um, 
which was what I was earning, seven days, five days a week on a normal job. Um, and I tried to do both, but it was just too much. You know, I was getting indoors at four, and I was up at six to work. Oh, God, so you only had two hours to pull it together and start yeah. again. And, I mean, while work, you know, as I explained to you what work was, it was still, I was still working with gas. Yeah. So there was a danger to, to the, the people I was going into their houses. You know, I, I was putting people's lives in danger. Um, so uh, I, I had a chat with my, my girlfriend and she said, give it a year, pack your job in, give it a year and see how the DJing goes. Did you really dream that you were going to become a DJ and do this? Or just was like, um, I'm throwing in the pool. I'm just going to jump in the pool and try it. I don't know if that's going to go. There, 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 wasn't, there wasn't a career in DJing before Acid House. You know, even, 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 even the, I think the people who are DJs, their, their um, goal in life was to get a job in a dance department at a major record label. Or on the radio. That's that was, right. Radio that, yeah, That's what they wanted, you know, and a lot of people did. Oki, Oki was doing Def Jam. Uh, Johnny Walker was at radio, was it London? Nancy had a job. Uh, that was the goal, not to be a DJ. The, the, the DJing was fun, but it was a, a way of getting a job in the industry. Uh, you know, nowadays it's the biggest job in the industry. Yeah, but back then, Ian Levine started in the North, like, for example, and look where he went to, and all those names from the 80s, 70s, and 80s. They weren't thinking about DJing as, we're going to take this international, we're going to be big superstars. They were thinking about, I want to make a record, and I want to produce, and how do I get in? I want to do something else. According to some of them, some of them very rich that we know, <laughs> that, that we should say we're born with some golden spoons. They weren't worried about money. They were able to play around and then go into it, where some of us were grafters, as you would call it in England, coming from yeah. nothing, you know, from the soil and working our way up to the, to the ranks. So officially, I got where Pete meets you and all that. When does this production team officialize? And the Junior Boy Zone blows up. and Because I know when you guys came to New York, that I remember Sound Factory, you were hanging out. We knew you were in town. But what happened pre to that? When did the office open up? When did this all become legitimized? Well, I mean, I already sort of mentioned Boca Juniors, and that was the first record on a new label that um, that somehow one uh, the Boys Own. I think it uh, itself. Terry can tell you a bit more about the background, but they were, you know, you, you're four friends from West, from West London ish, and and a deal somehow was hatched with the Pete Tong, who was at the time at FFRR in London, to for for Boys Own no, for, to to make records, and we were sort of. I was drafted in to help, as I've already mentioned, and, and we spent a week at a very expensive record label in act, a record studio in acting called called Eden, and must have cost a fortune. But we basically produced a record um, called Rays, and that was really the start. And that, that sort of kept going for a little while, but it never really evolved into anything particularly successful. And I think we got frustrated with the, sort of the major label pace of things because it was quite slow and you had to you had to take your place in the queue and, and and eventually we were like well let's do something you know a bit more underground that's a bit faster and and, and then independently was born out of that which was junior boy's own and um and there was an and there was a need to make records and so so you know we were basically people who got went into studios for a couple of days and knocked out records, as well as the remixes that started at that case. The, the first kind of house record we made was uh, Beating the Bones, um, which was Fire Island. Wasn't it Fire Island, Beating Your Bones? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, so I think we kind of just, you know, the, one, of the, one of the few things I'm good at, and there is only a few, is making up names and... Um, kind of throwing ideas in. So we kind of cut, we, we agreed on Fire Island. We thought that was a great name. Um, and um, Beating Your Bones, there was, it was, I was saying to you about, 
the Tony Humphreys tapes, that especially in Labrock Grove, people in Labrock Grove used to be crazy about Tony Humphreys. There, there, was a, there was a New Jersey Appreciation Society, which was like um, all these guys in, 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 in Labrock Grove, you know, um, and they were the New Jersey Appreciation Society. Anyway, and one of these tapes was a tone, on Tony Humphreys on Kiss FM was a jingle. And he just went, and the jingle went, Tony Humphreys, put in the beat in your bones. And it was like, Pete, we got to make a record called Beat in the Bones. Um, so Pete knew a rapper. No, I, I don't know where he came from, that guy. But he turned out to be the, the nephew of the, of the lead singer of Killing Joke, who were quite a big band around at the time. Um, but he was, yeah, he was a kind of rapper. I don't know where he came from, though. I don't think I knew him. Maybe I did. I can't remember. JC001. That's it, yeah. Yeah. Was it was he not was he not from the gay scene? No, no, he was like I said, he was he was just he was um he was related to um what's his name, the, the lead singer from Killing Joke. I can't remember his name anyway, but um Jazz, I think was wasn't it? Um anyway, yeah, he came down the studio, we knocked up a little beat, got him rapping, sampled a load of stuff he'd done, and um I plinked away at the keyboards and and a, and a track was done and a dub. We always did a dub and a track, and that was the first record on on um, Junior Boy's own. And, and then the story begins, because we know Junior Vasquez killed your records. We know how that story really blew up to you guys. But did Tony Humphries ever know about that, Terry? Did you ever tell him that? That you no. heard it on his mix show? Here we <laughs> go, everyone. Unearth another thing. The first record comes out of Junior Boy's own, and of course, Tony Humphries' show, and the guy saying that, putting them beats in your bones. There you go. I mean, we, we were, you know, we were very, very, you know, me, Pete and myself were very, very kind of influenced by New York. We, you know, that, that's, that, that was kind of, you know, was the... the uh, Mecca. Was the goal, you know. Well, thank God for that. I'm going to tell you guys, thank God you all were, because I, a lot of us would never have careers if you didn't champion yeah. what we were doing. Yeah. I always said that. You know, it was all, it was it was all about you know you know we I, I I can remember sitting in in you know with Pete and you know we're making records and you know I think it was on on Ultranate you know when we did the Ultranate record which become up Ultra Flavor you know Pete recreating the Sound Factory Siren you know uh, me being lazy Pete sampling Siren. And then going, no, no, I'm going to make one, and sort of spending about an hour and a half on this keyboard, kind of, you know, manipulating some sound into a into a siren, which, you know, always, always. Um, was that mix after you came to New York together, or was that before you came to New York and went to Sound Factory and and, and hung out and went and bought keyboards and stuff. I remember that time we were around New York. Yeah, it would have been after we'd gone there because it was directly, you know, influenced by what we heard in the clubs there. So, you know, we would go, I mean, I remember the first time I went to New York as a as an adult rather than a child, actually went over with, with Danny Ramney. I think it was his 30th birthday and a few of us went over. And we ended up going to the Sound Factory at the time when when Junior Vasquez had, had a year off, I think, and Frankie Knuckles was the resident. And, um, and just the just the sound in the, in the sound listening to the sound in in that room, um, and the sound in all the clubs really. You were just like that was like when you kind of realised this is what I want. You know, this is what I want my music to sound like. I want it to sound. I want it to sound good in this room on this system. It wasn't necessarily just about the DJ. It was about just the the sound. So um, you know, there was a sound system sound in New York. It was kind of like part of the heritage. Of, of the nightclubs in 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 the in particularly New York, they were made, you know, by you know Steve Dash and all, and all these other sort of legendary figures of of um, sort of audiophiles who had who had grown up connected to the clubs. And it was a very different philosophy to what was going on in Europe because the sound systems were nothing like anything before, like the Ministry came along. They just didn't sound anything like that. They were usually harsh and amps were being maxed out and everything was distorting. And then you went to a club like that and it was just like a whole different experience. So that's very influential on, on the music we make because we wanted to 
make records that sounded good on those big systems. So that was kind of really what drove our, our the, the kind of philosophy behind behind how we wanted our, our music to sound. And sure enough, you did because, you know, Frankie championed your music and Junior Vasquez championed a lot of your records. And a lot of us did. And we, you know, you say about the New York sound comparing to the UK sound. I mean, Justin Berkman, when he helped create ministry, he wanted to have the Paradise Garage feel and sound in England. He, and he got it there. So yeah. you're lucky enough to have, and ministry is still going now with the same sound system, but he wanted to recreate that because he was living in New York. Like uh, Oakenfold too, he lived in New York for a while as well in the 80s. But um, I know you guys did, you know, Fire Island became a, a name synonymous and with, with, as an artist name under the Junior Boys' own moniker. But of course, then Terry, now we get to your little Holloway story because that's a big part of the game too, that record. So tell us how you find Lolita. <laughs> bring, bring us up to how that was created for tracking everything that happened. See, <laughs> Terry, Terry, Terry was a, a, a man with, as, as he's already said, with many, many ideas, and um, he came up with a, with an idea, a great idea. Why don't we um, make a record? We, you know, we'll we'll do this record that was a bit of a club classic um, from Andy Weatherall who had introduced us to it. It was the, this record called Shat at the Top" by the was it Star Council? I think oh, it was Star. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, He'd, um, he said, well, we'll get, we'll get Lilita Holloway to sing on it. And I was like, okay, yeah, sounds a good idea. And it actually did, it's one of these mad ideas that actually happened. So, I mean, I don't know the, Terry, you probably can tell the story better than I, I can. Think, I think, idea. I think um, Steve Hall, who was the manager of Julie Boy's own, I've got a feeling he rung us at the studio on Friday or maybe a Monday and said, I've had a phone call. Lolita Holloway's in the country. Do you want to make a record with her? It's two thousand um, pounds. You know, we, we've got the money, uh, but you'll need her to sing on something. And we we said yes straight away. Um, and then we were like, then panic because um, you know how how do you make how do you write a great song? You know, we wrote, you know, we've only wrote a few songs, really. I mean, you know, I know Pete writes the music and, and stuff, but lyrically, you know, there's only a few things we had wrote. And, um, you know, while, while they're, they're, you know, they're okay, they're not what you would put in front of a, of a, of a disco goddess. You know, they're not hit and run and it's not love sensation. Right, right. So we, so basically, yeah, let's, let's do a track. And um, we wanted to do a track that wasn't, a house record, or was it a disco record? But had a had a had a had a feeling to us. And about five years previously, there had been a boys' own party um, that Simon Eccles had put on, one one of our other partners, uh, where Andy Weverell um, had played "Shout to the Top" in the middle of the night. You know, right in the middle of playing like pretty hard kind of techno records and he played this record uh, and it's like a big kind of Tamla Motown disco record and um, we said yeah, we're covered out you know we're covered out that's it's there's there's a link to us but also it's kind of as obscure as you know no one else would ever, would ever do that um, funny enough uh, in the in the uh, the new issue of uh, Faith, Paul Weller, we, we interviewed him. And because uh, I'd, I'd never heard, and I don't think Peter, whether he actually liked it or not, um, it was a kind of minor chart hit. It got to like 25 in the pop charts or something like that. So he, he got a few bob out of it. Um, but he actually said in the interview, that it, you know, he, he loved our, what we'd done and it was probably how he would have liked to, his mix to have come out. So that was quite nice. Yeah, we actually were. We, our studio at the time was was down in um, was was a very small space, smaller than this room actually. In in a, in a place called Wapping, in, in um, sort of 
just the just east of the city of London, and um, we'd had a converted toilet, which was the sound booth, and that's where Lolita went in to do her vocals. I <laughs> so it wasn't the most glamorous gig for her, I must say, but uh, um, it was uh, yeah, it was it was good fun. How posh! I mean, I, I reposh that is, boy. Okay, uh, Lolita, you'll be doing the vocals in the in the converted loo. And then the, it didn't it didn't look like a loo at the time, but that's what it was. It, to be fair, it was it was it was probably sort of soundproof. I, I, I remember she she just had um, surgery, and she showed us her. She had had like heart surgery, um, and she was having a bit of a trouble. Do you remember sort of getting herself yeah. kind of? And uh, she sent me out. I had to run to the off license to get a small bottle of scotch for her. That uh, she kind of knocked straight back, and then you know, sort of got herself going, and got, and then suddenly, you know, boss, we were there, and she, and, you know, and she was in the room, and it was quite amazing, really. Mm. Um, and then we ended up going to Chicago. We had what five days in Chicago. Yeah, so there, there were, at the time, um, boys owned a. Done a deal, or, or Steve Hall had done a deal for for Boys Own with Virgin Records. I think they were called V Two at the time, and this is Richard Branson's sort of new label. And as part of the deal, they really wanted to sign Underworld. To be fair, they weren't that interested in Far Island, but <laughs> as a nice little spin-off, they did um, sign up this record and invest a bit of money in in um, promoting it and making a video to go along with it. So we got a trip to to New York, to uh, Chicago in the middle of the winter, I have to say, it was absolutely fucking freezing. And um, <laughs> ah, yes. But, yes. Um, but we did have a good fun and we hung out with um, Lolita and, um, and and Candy, who is uh, a makeup artist, I believe. Candy <laughs> J. Work this pussy, Candy. And um, remember, it's Candy J, everybody. Put your hands up. You know, everybody's going, what? Candy J? Yes, Candy J. Work that pussy. <laughs> Wait a minute. So she's doing makeup for Lolita Holloway. I think yeah, she's doing yeah. makeup. For uh, hang on. Let me let me understand. So you guys get on the plane. You're all excited. You're going to Chicago now to go and cut a video together with her. Is that what the premise was from Virgin yeah. too? Yeah, yeah, with a video crew, and um, yeah, we just. Just you know, we weren't we weren't doing a great deal. We weren't we weren't featured heavily in the video. To be fair, <laughs> I think mostly we were just bowling around. There was one scene though where we we shot in gramophone, and um, we and Jen and Terry had sort of put out a little quest to all the DJs who were kind of like our, our sort of like you know we we looked up up to over the years to come down to the shop and poke their heads around the door while we were sh- filming in there, and quite a few did actually show up. 